Thank you, Sophie. Move this out of the way. Here we go. Wonderful. Um, it's good to be back in Joshua, isn't it? I've had a couple of weeks break, uh, so it's, it's good to pick um, the story back up again. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are indeed the God of all mercy and kindness and compassion. We pray that you would have compassion on us this morning, that you would help us not to be distracted by the heat or by the worries and concerns of life, but instead may we see the opportunity we have before us now to sit before you, to sit at your feet, to hear you speak to us. May your spirit give us attentive hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Now before, um, let me try and give a bit of recap, because it has been a couple of weeks. Um, Before Joshua, before this book, Israel were wanderers. They were refugees with nowhere to call home. And that meant they were vulnerable, they were open to attack, by hostile nations, and it kind of seemed like nobody wanted them to settle anywhere near them. And God makes this promise. It's a promise he made hundreds of years earlier, actually. But the promise is, I'm going to give you a land, the land of Canaan. That is going to be your home. And since entering the land, there have been some incredible successes for Israel, defeating hostile groups. And we didn't look at chapter 8. But if we had, we'd have seen they have another stomping victory over the city of Ai. And the thing is, news of these winds is traveling across the land. So verse 1 of chapter 9. Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things. We get a list of some of the kings and the peoples uh, of the region. And they've heard about Israel's winds. They've heard about Israel's successes. They've heard how Israel has overcome every opposing power up until this point. Now, it's obvious, therefore, that the momentum is with the people of God. So these kings have heard of all this, and what do you do? Well, there would be some wisdom, wouldn't there, in saying, well, maybe you should think about surrendering. Maybe you should think about coming to terms. That would make sense, wouldn't it? Instead, verse 2, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. What do they say about insanity? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. The nations come against God and his people and they are defeated. They come again and they are defeated. And they keep coming again and again and again. And they keep being defeated. They don't learn. You cannot resist God's rule. Before getting into the rest of the passage just want to stop here and think about something for a moment. Because it is possible, isn't it, that like these kings who keep trying to hold out against the Lord and think this time the result will be different, we also try and hold out against the Lord and resist his rule and his will and his word. Maybe, maybe you're not a Christian. Wonderful that you're here this morning. And perhaps you have indeed been feeling, feeling this pull towards Jesus, towards the life that he offers and towards his teachings, but you keep coming up with excuses not to believe, not to repent, not to trust in him. Maybe you've been a Christian for many years. And you know there is something in your life that the Lord is putting his finger on some habit, some ambition, some relationship, and you know he is convicting you, but like the kings west of the Jordan, you keep trying to resist. You make excuses. You try and justify it. 
But the Lord keeps coming back and putting his finger on that issue again. And I just want to say, before we really get into this passage, do not be like the kings west of the Jordan. Don't think you can resist God's will or change his mind. It won't work. It will either end tragically in defeat for you, or more hopefully, in your surrender now. Better, isn't it, to surrender now, come to Christ, change what the Lord wants you to change, surrender now, rather than be defeated in the future. So don't be like the kings west of the Jordan. Instead, be more like Gibeon. The people of Gibeon choose surrender. And what makes this event so interesting is that the Gibeonite surrender is actually failure for Israel and victory for Gibeon. I think it'd be the other way around, wouldn't you? If they're surrendering, surely Gibeon are losing and Israel are winning. But we're going to see it's failure for Israel and victory for Gibeon. Let's have a think about that. The Israelites fail because they are naive and impatient. Now, before they entered the land, the Lord had said to his people, don't make a treaty with any of the peoples within the borders of the land of Canaan. Otherwise, they will turn you away from me. So no peace treaties with people in the land. And it seems that the people of Gibeon know about this injunction. They know that Israel planned to attack and defeat all the nations within the boundaries of Canaan. And so they come up with this plan to pretend that they don't live in the land of Canaan, to pretend that they live miles and miles away, which would mean that Israel could make a peace treaty with them. And so they send a delegation, some kind of ambassadors, and they dress them up to make it look as though they've traveled for miles. Basically what they do is they dig out their DIY clothes. We've all got them, haven't we? The kind of clothes we wear when we're doing messy jobs around the house, a pair of jeans we bought 10 years ago in kind of holes around the knees, or that horrible jumper that we once thought was fashionable, or even worse, someone brought for us thinking it was fashionable, and a pair of trainers tied together with Gorilla Tape. We've got, we've, we've got our DIY clothes. That's what this delegation from Gibeon are basically wearing. And they add to it some moldy bread and wine carriers that are split and in tatters, all to give the impression that they have traveled for days and days and miles and miles. And Joshua and Israel fall, fall for it. That the Lord said to his people, don't make a treaty with anybody in the land of Canaan. By the end of verse 15, Joshua and Israel have made a peace treaty with Gibeon. So what goes wrong? How do they end up falling for this? Well, two things. First, they were spiritually naive. Starts well. When the Gibeonites turn up in their DIY clothes, Israel questions them, verse 7. But perhaps you live near us. How can we make a treaty with you? Reasonable question, where are you from? And already the Gibeonites are being a bit evasive, verse 8. It doesn't matter where we're from, we're your servants. They resort to flattery. It's a good tactic, isn't it? Distract with flattery. Kids, go and tidy your room. Dad, have I ever told you that I think you are the best dad in the world? But Joshua sees past the flattery. He pushes for an answer, verse 8. Who are you and where do you come from? They answered, 
Your servants have come from a very distant country. Still pretty vague, isn't it? Where are you from? Oh, we're from a long, 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 long way away. You, you'd never have heard of it. Never would have heard of it. And then they get out their props, their dry and moldy bread, and their cracked and empty wineskins, and their tatty clothes. And they continue with the flattery. They keep saying, we are your servants. We are your servants. And Joshua is sold, verse 15. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. The problem here is that Israel and Joshua are just a bit gullible. I mean, the Gibeonite plan, it's a good plan. But some DIY clothes and a bit of moldy bread, that shouldn't be enough to have persuaded Joshua and Israel. Maybe after their successes, they've forgotten they are still in a war. Maybe they've forgotten that they are surrounded by hostile powers. Whatever it is, they're a bit gullible, they're a bit naive. Now, we're not in the same kind of battle as Joshua and Israel, but as Christians, we are still in a war, a spiritual war. Our battle isn't physical. It is against the spiritual powers of of Satan and, and demons who work to push back the kingdom of God, who are trying to drag people away from life in Jesus, and who are trying to bring misery and destruction and chaos into the world. We are at war with them. And like the people of Gibeon, Satan and his armies can do subtle. They can do cunning. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14, Satan and his workers can even masquerade as angels of light. I guess the point is, don't be spiritually naive. Now I'm not saying let's be super cynical and skeptical about everything around us. But when it comes to the faith, to the church, to what we believe and what we do as Christians, then a little bit of skepticism can be healthy. Not every idea or project or plan a Christian or Christian group comes up with is necessarily a good one. Not everything you see or hear on YouTube is true and right even if the person's claiming to be a Christian, perhaps especially if they are claiming to be a Christian. And you know when you think, the Lord is calling me to do something. He's laid this on my heart. I must go and do this. Maybe he isn't. Remember, Satan can masquerade as an angel of light. Don't be spiritually naive. Don't be spiritually gullible. We'll think about how we can discern those things in a moment, but don't be spiritually naive. And the other failure of Israel is this. They were spiritually impatient. Verse 14, the Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. So Israel asks some questions. They even tasted some of the provisions that the Gibeonites bring, the dry, moldy bread. That's brave, isn't it? And yet they don't inquire of the Lord. They take time to sit down and and share out this moldy bread, but they do not take the time to bring this issue before God in prayer. And it wouldn't have taken long. If they had just waited three days, they would have discovered that 
the Gibeonites live about five miles down the road. But instead, there's too little patience and too much self-confidence and not enough prayer and waiting upon the Lord. They were spiritually impatient. I think we can relate to that, can't we? Why go slow when you can go fast? (laughs) Why wait and do nothing when you can go and do something? Why pray about a job when you can just get on and apply for it? Why pray about a relationship when you could just ask them out and start dating? Why pray about your future when you can just get on and live it? There's an old hymn with these, uh, this line um, that, that we lean on the everlasting arms. The everlasting arms of God. We lean on the everlasting arms. With all our plans and all our decisions, this should be our stance as Christians. That we lean on the everlasting arms of God. That we seek him and his wisdom. We seek him in prayer. We seek him in his word. We seek him in the wisdom of older and maturer and wiser brothers and sisters around us. We lean on the everlasting arms of God. And yes, we don't sit in the everlasting arms of God. We're not passive and inactive. But more patience, less self-confidence, more prayer will probably save us from many needless heartaches and pain. So Gibeon's success is Israel's failure. They fail because they are spiritually naive and spiritually impatient. Secondly, the Gibeonites succeed because they are desperate. There's there's an ambiguity in this passage. On the one hand, the Gibeonites, they're tricksters. But then there are hints that they're not all bad. So the ambiguity comes from verse 3 and 4. When the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they resorted to a ruse. That phrase, resorted to a ruse, it translates the word cunning. It's a word that can be positive or it can be negative. So it could mean crafty. It's how the serpent is described in Genesis 3. The serpent was the most crafty of all animals in the garden. It's a negative way of thinking about it. But sometimes it is translated more positive with the word prudence. So in the book of Proverbs, the word describes people who are careful and thoughtful and wise. So what are the Gibeonites? Are they crafty or are they prudent? Well, on the one hand, it looks obvious, doesn't it? They're they're crafty, they deceive, they trick, they lie. But look again, and maybe there is some prudence in here as well. Now later, in the exchanges between Joshua and the Gibeonites... When Joshua realizes that he's been tricked, he asks them, why did you do it? Verse 24, they answered Joshua, your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this. They had heard what the plan was. They knew that Israel was under this instruction to defeat all peoples within the land. 
And unlike the other nations, they believed it. They believed that God really would give Israel victory. And they don't want to die. They want to live. They want peace and life. They want to come under the protection of the God of Israel. And so they come up with this plan. Yes, it is deceptive, but they are desperate to make a treaty with Israel. You see, here's the thing. What the Gibeonites want is absolutely right. But the way they go about getting it isn't. In fact, the Gibeonites are very similar to the father of Israel, Jacob. If you were here last year, we were looking at the life of Jacob. We read about him in Genesis. He is desperate to get hold of God's blessing and God's promises. He realizes there is nothing more precious in the world. But he goes about it the wrong way. He tricked his father. He tricked his brother. He tricked his uncle. Like the Gibeonites, he is deceptive and tricksy. So the Gibeonites are like the father of Israel, Jacob. Yes, they trick and they deceive Israel, but why? Because what they want is the right thing. They are desperate for the Lord's protection, the Lord's blessing, and the Lord's peace. And there is something then for us to imitate here. Not the deception or the lying or the trickery. But if there's something we can learn from the Gibeonites, something we can imitate, it is their determination and their desperation to experience peace with God and to know the Lord's protection and favor. There's this strange um, line in the New Testament that, that Jesus says when he's speaking about the kingdom of God growing. And he says in Luke chapter 16, it will be on the screen, that the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached And everyone is forcing their way into it. What does he mean? Everyone is forcing their way into the kingdom. He means such is the wonder, the brilliance, the beauty, the glory of the gospel and the kingdom of God that people are desperate to enter. You see that in Jesus' life, don't you? People pleading with Jesus, heal me, save me, have mercy upon me, Jesus. They throw themselves before him, bless me Jesus or I die. It's what Jacob does with God. He literally ends up wrestling with God, pleading with him, desperate for God to bless him and save him and give him life. Bless me Lord or I die. And that is something we can imitate. That determination, that desperation for the Lord's protection, his favor, his salvation, his life. And I think for those of us who've been Christians for a few years, maybe we are the ones who need to hear this more. Because we get complacent. We forget how much we need the Lord. We forget we're in a war. Like Joshua and Israel, we've stopped seeking the Lord. We've stopped being desperate for the Lord's help and his blessing and his presence. So let me suggest this. If you are struggling with disappointment or loneliness or heartbreak, seek the Lord like the Gibeonites, like Jacob, like those forcing their way into the kingdom. Don't give up calling upon the Lord until he comforts your heart until he changes you, until he brings contentment. 
Maybe you're beset with some sin. You keep failing and falling into the same thing over and over again. Well, plead with the Lord until he helps you make some progress. Don't just think one prayer once a month, one prayer once a week. That's enough. That's not the same kind of desperation we see here from the Gibeonites, from, Joshua, uh, from Jacob, from those forcing their way into the kingdom. If you're frustrated with your parenting or your work or your marriage, you know that this could be better. You know that you could be doing a better job. Well, seek the Lord and don't give up until he changes you and changes the situation. Those struggling with all of these things, Seek the Lord. Be desperate for his help. So the Gibeonites succeed because they are desperate. And finally, because of the Lord, actually in the end, they both win. According to the infinite wisdom and glorious mercy of God, he turns Israel's failure into a win for everybody. I mean, it is a win for Israel, isn't it? The Gibeonites are subdued. They don't have to fight them. But also, it is a win for the people of Gibeon. Not at first. I mean, it is, but at first, it doesn't look like much of a win, does it? Joshua says, okay, look, fine, we'll not attack you. But effectively, you will become our slaves, verse 21. They continued, let them live. But let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. Verse 23, you are now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. Gibeon survive, but only as servants, as slaves. It's not much of a win, is it? But interestingly, the Gibeonites themselves seem quite content with that. Verse 25, they say, we feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. The the treaty is not a treaty of equals. The people of Gibeon will become the servants of the people of Israel, but they're not complaining. Throughout all of their negotiations with Israel, they have embraced the title of servant. And maybe it's just a simple equation in their mind, better to be servants and live than to be free and die. But I think it's more than that. I think their win is much bigger than that. Where specifically are the Gibeonites going to serve? Verse 23, you're under a curse, you will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God, the temple. You get something similar in verse 26. Joshua saved them from the Israelites and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they do to this day. They end up being servants in the house of the Lord, serving in the temple, providing the needs for the temple. See, why are they so content? Why is this a bigger win than simply surviving? Why are they happy to just be servants? 
because of where they are. They are servants, slaves even, in the kingdom of God, in the house of God, in the presence of God. And that is a win. And I think the question for us is, would we consider that a win? Do we believe that it is better to be slaves and servants in the presence of God than to be kings and queens but excluded from God and his blessing? It's like David in Psalm 84. We'll sit on the screen. He says, Better is one day in your courts, in the house of the Lord, than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. See what King David is saying? I would give up my kingship, my power, my prestige and serve on the door if that is what it took to be in the presence of God. I'd give up a thousand days of wealth and health and everything this world could offer for just one day in God's presence. Better to be a woodcutter and a water carrier in the presence of God, better to be a slave in the house of God than to be kings and queens in the world without God. It reminds me of an encounter that Jesus had in the New Testament with a desperate mother. Her daughter has been infected with a demon and she pleads with Jesus to heal her. But this woman is Greek. She's not a Jew. She was not part of the people of God. She was an outcast, not someone who Jesus should have shown favor to. And Jesus says to her, First, let the children eat all they want, as in the people of Israel. Let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Seems harsh, doesn't it? But Jesus effectively identifies this woman as a dog. But listen to her reply. Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Do you see what she's saying? I'd happily be a dog in the kingdom of heaven if it means I can eat even some crumbs of the blessing and life and joy that come from you, Jesus. And Jesus commends her faith. Because this woman got it. None of us deserve to be in the kingdom of God. None of us deserve life that God offers us. And so wonderful is that life and precious and glorious to be in the presence of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that if I have to be a dog that just gets some crumbs, then that is a win. And so again, the question is for us, do we see that as a win? Have we seen what the Gibeonites saw? Have we seen what King David saw? Have we seen what the woman pleading with Jesus saw? That there is nothing more precious, more wonderful than to be in the kingdom of God and to be in the presence of Jesus. It is better to be a servant, a slave, a water carrier, a wood cutter in the house of the Lord than to be a king or queen but excluded from God. It is better to spend one day in the house of the Lord than to spend a thousand elsewhere enjoying everything, the best that this world could offer, but without God. 
It is better to be a dog and eat the crumbs of God's blessing than to feast on the finest food this world can offer but be cut off from God. And it's even true for us now. In the providence of God, it may be that he ordains struggle and hardship in your life now. But it is better to experience heartache and suffering if it is coming from the Lord than to have all the desires of your heart fulfilled but not know Christ. Brothers and sisters, do we see that this is a win? Wonderfully. We will not be slaves in the kingdom of heaven. We'll be children. But do we see how precious and good and valuable the kingdom of God is? That even if we were just dogs eating the crumbs, it would be better than anything else we could ever experience. Have we seen what the Gibeonites saw? Have we seen what David saw? Have we seen what the woman who encountered Jesus saw? Being a servant, a doorkeeper, a woodcutter, just one day in the kingdom of God is always a win compared to anything else. Moment of quiet and they're going to pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we see too dimly the blessings that are ours in the Lord Jesus. We confess that we are too easily enchanted by what this world offers. And we pray that we would see more clearly who the Lord Jesus is. The joy, the life, the future, the hope that is ours because of him. That we might have the faith of that woman. We might even be able to say it'd be better to be a dog and just eat the crumbs than anything else that we might say with David rather be a doorman in the house of the Lord than anything else Father give us that kind of understanding that kind of faith in Jesus name Amen